listening to the best bits of the Breakfasters from 3RRR. You are listening to the Breakfasters podcast for the week 26th of March to the 30th of March. It was my birthday week as well, which is the most important thing about everything that happened. Mm -hmm. Uh, We did, though, speak to Tim Winton about his new book, The Shepherd's Heart. It's very exciting. As it was your birthday, we had a little bit of chat (laughs) about that. And also um, High Tide Thursday, we talked about our visit to the Werribee Zoo. Yes, and we talked about reality TV shows that we would invent. And then we caught up with Baska Sankara, the editor of Jacobin magazine about American politics. Triple R, not for everyone, for anyone. You're tuned to Breakfasters here on Triple R. The Shepherd's Hut is a new novel out through Penguin. Its author is the acclaimed novelist Tim Winton. He's joining us now in the studio. Welcome to Breakfasters. Um, thank you, <laughs> I think. <laughs> it is very early and I know we know that you've been very busy, so thanks so much for joining us. But what jumps out at the reader of this new novel is the voice in this book, this very distinctive first-person narrative from Jaxie. How do you go about capturing the internal dialogue of a troubled teenager from a small town in WA? Yeah, it's a good question. I wish I had a kind of a convincing answer um, to it. The, the voice sort of arrived, and um, uh, I, when I when when this book sort of first started, it was a really inconvenient start because I was in the middle of um, something else completely, and this this scene just um, arrived in my mind almost like a memory. You know, it was sort of hot and hard, and um, and it came with the voice. Um, the, you know, the mind that was seeing it was clearly wasn't mine. Um, so it was bloody inconvenient, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> and it completely derailed the thing that I've been working on for a couple of years. And um, so in in the end, I don't think I was um, so much creating the voice as um, following it. I kind of felt like I'd, I'd got my sleeve caught in the pram rack at the back of the bus, you know, on the outside of the bus, and I was just running along trying to retrieve my clothing, you know, just trying to stay, you know, stay with it, trying to keep up with this, this filthy um, racist... Urchin uh, was telling the story and um, and wondering what the hell half the time, you know. So it was, I just felt um, look, I'm, I was conscious that I was his creator and sustainer, but um, and he was supposed to be um, my boy. But there were times when I th- I was starting to suspect that he'd made me his boy. Is that a common experience for you when you've written books in the past? I don't know. It all sounds a bit romantic, and it's not very romantic because I, you know, I'm. I'm not that kind of a writer, but um, yeah, sometimes, sometimes something comes along and you're a little bit possessed by it, you know, um, and, and you can't tell if it's your idea or the idea is its own idea, you know. It's mm. weird. You, sorry, you often talk about in. I told you it wasn't going to be a very good answer. <laughs> <laughs> when you talk, uh, you've talked about when you start writing, you often start with the environment first. Um, what was the environment that started this novel? Yeah, I guess I, 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 I do start with a place. It's always a place, and 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 the, the characters and the the problems of the story follow a kind of an ecological logic and. Um, where this started for me is in the the, the wheat belt um, of Western Australia, which you know used to be uh, a woodland um, the size of half of Western Europe. I mean, there are chunks of woodland the size of Poland that were scraped away in the in the between the twenties and the and the fifties that were the you know the one of the biggest wars on nature um, in, in global history, mm. and they they declared it as a as, as a war and as a marvel of human um, ingenuity and engineering, they just bulldozed these woodlands to, to create broadacre paddocks. Um, and, you know, there's the Ukraine and then there's the West Australian wheat belt in terms of food bowl. But um, what's happened since then is that um, because the trees have all been scraped away, salt rises to the surface um, uh, and broadacre farming for wheat has just become so mechanised it's this. It's almost like uh, it's a strange, desolate region. There's almost no people. Those people who live there are ageing, and so for young people, particularly young men, it's a very lonely place. Suicide rates are about three times higher than metropolitan levels. That was kind of the ecology. These tiny, tiny towns. You know, one servo, one silo, mm. uh, one pub. Um, 
and you can drive through the street, you know, you could fire a machine gun down the, the main street of those towns and you, you wouldn't be in any danger of hurting anybody. Yeah, this is a book inhabited by troubled, damaged men. I mean, there's a female presence, but she's in, in, in the background mm. and it's come out at a time where masculinity is under scrutiny. Do you think there is a crisis of masculinity in Australia? If so, what do you think is behind it? I don't know. I sometimes wonder if masculinity is the crisis. But, uh, <laughs> um, and I certainly didn't write, you know, the, the book with all this in mind because, I mean, I wrote the book. The book was finished almost a couple of years ago now. Um, um, and I've been writing about, you know, broken blokes um, for decades. And uh, But it is uh, it is interesting that it, you know, should be sort of published into this into this global conversation um yeah I, th I think we are at a point um and it's a it's timely in a sense that we're having this conversation about women just you know saying come on enough 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 um and buoying one another up uh to call stuff out you know and i think that's a that's a great thing and i think it's a you know it's, it's an interesting time for me to have this book out and be coming at it from the other angle, saying to men, um, "Come on, time's up. Enough's enough." And I think it's it's wonderful to have seen women claiming ground in the last couple of generations, making, taking strides, planting the flag, fighting, fighting to the you know, fighting that new bit of territory, defending it. Brave souls, a few brave souls, go out ahead and plant the flag a little bit further, and you know. But women have this have a motivation to to progress, and that's to claim what's rightfully theirs. Um, men men need to progress, but the, the motivation is different and more complicated. In order to progress, men don't need to advance so much in a conventional sense. They need to relent. They need to surrender power. They need to listen. Um, and men aren't trained to relent or to yeah. surrender or to give. And um, so there's a sort of fundamental thing that needs to change, but I, th I think, I think this conversation that people are having is um, is a useful moment to appeal to men um, to, to 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 explain to them that there's a there's an opportunity there for them. They can have a richer life um, by um, by letting some stuff go, and if by letting some stuff go, you get stuff back. You get a, you know. Because we're stuck on these rails of this very narrow version of masculinity, and it, you know it, it's very it's very limiting emotionally. Um, and I think you know uh, I think there's more to gain than we than we realise. So I'm hoping that you know um, there's ways to present that to, to men that it's not just about um, giving up power. It's about it's about gaining a, a, a richer life, and also. It makes you. It does make you happier to realise, you know, that there's things you can do that make other people's lives richer and safer and uh, and fairer. You, you know, you, you do feel good from, you know, in, in the same way that you, you know, when you 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 give money to someone who needs who needs mm. Mm. Uh, help, uh, or you give someone a lift or a hand when they when they're in need. I mean, you, you know, you've done something good for them, but you you feel better in yourself. I think. It's a win-win situation. Yeah, I mean, it, it all sounds a bit fancy pants and 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 airy fairy, but I actually think that that's that's possible. You know, yeah. I think that, mm. that, that should be that way. Uh, the Shepherd's Hut also seems, at least in my reading, to be a book inhabited by certain Christian themes or images, and I'm interested in how you see the relationship between faith and writing. I mean, Les Murray famously introduces his books, dedicating them to the glory of God. Do you think about writing in that way, or is it just that as a writer with particular ideas, you bring those ideas to the work? Oh, I think I'm, you know, I'm polluted with those, those ideas and, and, and they're with me. And, you know, uh, uh, I probably don't have the confidence to uh, dedicate my books the way that Les does, but um, I'm not as good a writer as Les. Um, I mean, you know, I, I have some different views about life um, to Les, but he's someone I, I really admire. Um, 
Yeah, I, I, th I think um, your values are, uh, are going to be present in your work as they are in your life, you know, in the end. Uh, it's, but it's about the propaganda of the deed as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> <laughs> we were talking earlier about the voice in this book with Jackson and how unique it is. He also uses this really distinct slang that many people would consider kind of unliterary, I suppose. You, you make it Kind of unliterary, yeah, 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 I would have yeah, thought. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in some sense, yes, in many senses. And But you make it into this extraordinarily literary prose. You, you, it, it's quite beautiful when you read it. How do you go about doing that? I don't know. You just uh, work. Um, but I actually, you know, I love common so-called common language. I like yeah. vernacular language. I've always loved colloquial language. That's why I, I love the writers of the American South. That's why I like the Irish, the, the Scots, <clears throat> excuse me, um, some writers from the, the, the north of France. I, I kind of like, you know, the, the no-account folks. Um, and if, you know, and I've, people have heard me say this a million times, if you come from the wrong side of the wrong country and the wrong hemisphere... You have a sort of natural empathy for people who are from no account places, um, but that you know that the challenge, strange challenge of of um, trying to see the beauty in you know the spiky, um, profane, um, kind of almost impoverished language that Jaxie has. This character, um, I, I don't know. I. I I like. I guess I like to honour honour that language, but it's it's a it's challenging. It's fun, and and you just think, well, what if what if you can lift this up? And I, and there's nothing really that you can. I don't know, I don't know how that works, but you just try it and see. And mm. um, and and but people say things all the time that um, in some contexts are, are ugly or 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 low, um, so called low. I'm never sure about these terms, you know, but. Um, no, I just I just hear I hear music in people's language. I suppose I don't think I'm doing anything special. Uh, in 2016, uh, there was a new species of fish discovered in the Kimberleys in Western Australia, <laughs> and scientists named it after you. How does that compare to winning a Miles Franklin? <laughs> <laughs> well, it was a species of grunter. <laughs> so we just, <laughs> so we're, we've got to, we've got to, you know, settle down a little bit about that. Um, and look, it, was, it wasn't discovered. That, you know, um, the Nyarinin and uh, people in the in, in the Kimberley have known about that fish forever. So it's it's uh, it's only been uh, described, I suppose. Um, but yeah, it was lovely. It was it was a it was a fun it was a fun thing, and it was really um, it was a bit of an honour, really, for 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 those. To think that those people would um, would consider um, me worthy of uh, of a really pretty little fish in one of the world's last great wild places. Mm. Um, so yeah, I was touched. I read that there's a film adaptation coming out for Breath. Mm -hmm. I wonder how do you feel about your books being adapted to film? Uh, I don't know. I don't know if I feel that much at all, to be honest. I mean, it's um, at one level, it's a commercial transaction you know they, they they pay a certain consideration to be able to have their way with my with my book I mean by the time I've finished a book I'm I'm done you know that's my that's my work that's that's it I, I can't I can't fix it you don't I, you feel know. possessive over the story though no not really um it doesn't mean that when you actually sit uh in the cinema and see it all 20 foot high and wide that you that you don't have complicated feelings about it but it's um it's not the book. Um, the only way I can describe it really is it's a little like um, it's a little like sending. You know, it's like it's a familial thing. It, it becomes like a cousin to the mm. book, and you you wish it well. You have a kind of connection to it, but it's not intimate. Do you know what I mean? Mm. And you just oh, good on you, mate. <laughs> <laughs> he did all right. He's got, he's got himself a lawn mowing round. He's done all right. He's not in jail, you know. <laughs> Um, so look, I think it's it's nice. I mean, it's, it's nice to to think that somebody's interested enough in your work to give it a different life. And um, but you hand it over to them, you know, uh, as I said, because they've they've uh, they've paid for that privilege. Um, and and you hope that they someone can make a a, a decent work of art in a, in its own right on the back of it. And 
if you're in the in the business of useless beauty, which you know I I I'm in, um, you don't have any utility as a as a novelist. Um, so every now and again, accidentally, you end up employing a few hundred people and bringing a few million dollars into a small community, and you think, well, well. Um, it's nice, you know, to have a, a holiday from uselessness. <laughs> <laughs> the new novel is The Shepherd's Hut. It's out through Penguin. We've been talking to its author, Tim Winton. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Three Triple R. You are listening to Breakfasters with Sarah, Jeff, and Geraldine. It is Sarah's birthday today. It happy is. birthday. Thanks, guys. Uh, so, what we're going to do. Thanks for the two people that wish me happy birthday on the text line. <laughs> Well, yes. The, <laughs> I'm oh, sure there were lots of no, others. No, there, there was a few. at the time. Yeah, no. 04669081027 is the number to text if you would like to wish Sarah a happy birthday. No pressure. It's a very insignificant birthday, so it's all right. Uh, no birthday is insignificant, mate. Oh, thanks. You're very special. <laughs> so what you. we're going to do is, Jeff, we're going to go around... The circle, just you and me. Is this what we're doing? What are we doing? <laughs> we, you're going to you have to say the things that you most like about Sarah. Oh, and they have to be personality traits because I've noticed that Jeff, when he compliments people, always <laughs> says things like, you are good at... Oh, jeez. <laughs> and I like your clothes. See, this is my gift to you. Thanks, Jess. I didn't know this. Was, I genuinely didn't know this was going to happen. So I love this. Ma- put Jeff on the <laughs> spot. Jeff well, why, why, don't, why, don't you, why don't you start start us off? Oh, okay. Um, I... Uh, okay, now I'm uncomfortable. I don't think we should do this. No, no, no. We're going to do it. Oh, <clears throat> oh, I feel sick. I really enjoy uh, the real emotions that you show <laughs> when we um, <laughs> hang out with each other. I like that you um, you let think, you get caught up in the moment and you can have a cry and you, you show some oh, vulnerability thanks. and I think that's a really important trait to have in somebody. That's very lovely. Thank mm. you. I can also get very angry very easily, which is, which is where I thought you were going with that. <laughs> <laughs> feel like a backhanded guy. Yeah. I love the way you get angry so easily. I love the way you have so many emotions. Um, oh, I think Sarah's very kind. I've noticed whenever something's gone wrong or, you know, something's bad happened in life, she always, like, sends me a message or some kind of nice little thing or oh, says something nice. about it or remembers or knows some sort of yeah. thing that everyone always does. Okay, I can't deal with this. No, I can't deal with weird, this talk break. It's making me oh. really, it's really overwhelming. It's fine. I think here's, I am going to cry. Here's what I've done, though. <clears throat> but thank you, guys. That was both really lovely to say I've, about uh, me on air. <laughs> I've started to write. Um, I haven't finished it yet, but I have started to write a This Is Your Life. No. <laughs> <laughs> is there anyone here who's going to walk through the door? Uh, no. <laughs> who was the guy? You should say that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> your long lost brother. Uh, um, who was the guy who used to do This Is Your Life? Uh... Oh, I can't Ray remember. Ray Martin. It was Ray Martin, wasn't it? He'd walk in with a book. It was Ray. And then did... Um, was it Ray Martin? Yeah. Done? This and is your did, life. Did Eddie end up doing it at one stage Maybe. as well? Oh, God, wouldn't that be the worst? Oh. Yeah. Imagine having Eddie McGuire knowing all this stuff about your <laughs> yeah. life. It's a life I don't want. Okay, so pretend that I'm Ray. <clears throat> okay. And I've got my big book out <clears throat> and you walk in. Uh, born on the 27th of March in the 1980s. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> to a hobby farmer and a retired rocket scientist. <laughs> May or may not be fair. Might have to do some fact checks on this. Your life was nearly cut short at the age of five uh, when you were thrown into the dam by your father. Luckily, he had tied empty milk bottles to your arms like floaties and you did indeed float. You well, were this was a moment where we do like a recreation of the being thrown into the dam. <laughs> Ah, Mike Munro. Mike Munro, thanks everyone. Ah, you could have texted happy birthday, but you all text Mike Munro. <laughs> 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 That's right, it's like they're all wishing Mike Munro. It's not doesn't it? <laughs> uh, you were a lonely child. <laughs> Friends would come and visit you on the farm. However, it wasn't often they would make a return visit. This is due mainly to the Yabakaka bird. Yabakaka bird. Yabakaka. That's my favourite bird. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Christy remembered it. <laughs> you, like your father, were a big fan of bees. And you actually have bees to thank for your lips. Because as you remember, you didn't have lips until two bees stung you on the top and bottom of your mouth. These bees defy the laws of nature and did not fly off to die, instead became your best friends, Judy and Georgia. What? The three of you. That might not be factual. I do have a friend who's Georgia, so you get in there. The three of you would spend your afternoons recreating Lauren Hill video clips. (laughs) Would this be the moment that Mike Munro would bring the bees in? Yes. (laughs) 
Please welcome Judy and Georgia. Um, Judy and Georgia would eventually abandon you in your darker days <laughs> when you were spending all your spare time in the car park of McDonald's smoking ciggies. Uh, yes. <laughs> Uh, there was a particular day that you wish you had have just stayed at home and that was the night you flicked your cigarette into a bin that was filled with leftover pickles. This caused an explosion and McDonald's was burnt to the ground. Oh, my God. All your fault. <laughs> um, <clears throat> later, you would be reunited uh, with Judy and Georgia. He introduced you to writing about music. That's all I've come up with so far. That's you have to come up with the rest. I love that there's some fact-based there and then I'm just... Also friends with some gigantic bees. <laughs> they're just they're giant bees. They're just, no, they're just normal sized bees. Oh, I'm oh, imagining yeah. giant bees. No, I was no. imagining them as giant bees. Yeah, walking into the room. Yeah. Oh, no, they're the bees that gave you your lips. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it stung thanks, you on the mouth. Guys. You didn't have any lips and now you've got lips because oh, of Judy. Oh, got a nice message from Vanessa as well. Oh, thanks. Someone finally texted me. Happy birthday. Thanks. 04669810272. <laughs> That's all right. Um, That's great. Obviously, there's a lot more to be added into your um, the story of your life. I only got to your early days. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's a story that will continue for many years, <laughs> I hope. <laughs> Three. Triple. Proud triple. Sorry, I was mimic, trying to mimic. Um, Chris Gill's voice. Yeah, it's very deep. And anyway, soulful. Uh, <laughs> hey, um, there was an article I was reading in um, Pedestrian. It was just made a, a list of um, all these whacked um, reality TV shows. Yes. Have you? I don't no. know. If you, I don't know if you saw it. Do you remember? Um, they kind of, kind of just rank them from least disturbing to most. Essentially, do you remember the show Ladder to Lady? Yes, yeah. Oh. How could I forget Ladder yeah. to Lady? I loved it for all the wrong reasons, obviously. So did I. But do you know what it was? It was like, oh, if there's any ever a reality TV show that I'd have a chance of going on and winning, it'd be Ladder <laughs> to Lady. Because <laughs> I thought I could, uh. I could, you know, just turn it up a notch in my bogan heritage, and you know, sure. For the, for the trials. Was there ever... Because that was English, wasn't it? Yeah. It's very, very... It wasn't... Was no, there was an Australian... It, I think it, there was an English one. There was an Australian one where they went to, oh, it to England. it started as English. Yeah. It started as yeah. English because lads is a very... Lads thing. Yeah, I've never yeah. seen the Australian one. Was oh, that the, it was great. Was that the one with the machine that used to make them over? No, no, no. That what was, was that? Kiss... Oh, that was Kiss, Marry or Kill or... Kiss yeah. no, Snog of oh. Void. Snog of Void, yeah. Yeah, which I loved as well. <laughs> that was, yeah, I used to watch that too. And it was always almost like beat for beat the same, wasn't it? The exact it? same yeah. thing. Yeah. All that that robot would do would tell them to take off the fake tan. Yeah. <laughs> it's so true. Take off your fake tan. Uh, there was also um, this, oh, man, these some some really whacked ones. Like there was one called um, uh, Labor Games. Which at first on on the first one I thought oh this is a um, where you f- um, have to fight your way into the Labor Party <laughs> like it's like a <laughs> take like, on Bill Shorten yeah, yeah. <laughs> factional intrigues but I don't know if it's worse or better but basically they went they would go into a maternity ward and um, just while women were in Labor um, asked them trivia so they'd ah, be a quiz while they were in Labor. <laughs> What? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, that exists. In it the doesn't, world. does it? Yeah, yeah. In in Finland, I think. Or wow. One, one of those countries. <laughs> Just like that is mental. You know. Who would sign up What's for a show like that? What's the capital of Portugal? <laughs> <laughs> Leave me alone. <laughs> maybe wow. They, maybe they, it's one of those. They sign up later. Hi, hi. I know you're having a baby, but would you? Can you sign this and answer a few questions? Sure. Um, um, yeah. You ever looked at those things though, and you just think. You know, some of those games that become franchised and go all over the world, and you think, I could have thought of that. Oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, I'd be a billionaire by now if I'd thought of that. Yeah, definitely. Have you thought of one? Well, I have actually. Yeah. I was thinking it? when I was, um, I told you when we were up in the Blue Mountains on the weekend and mm. uh, we saw the bowerbird. Yes. Mm. And the way that it makes a nest. Yeah. Okay. And then dances around on it. Yes. Yeah. This is mine. My game would be So You Think You're a Bowerbird. Oh, my God. I love it. So what you have to do, all the contestants... This is the greatest thing that you've ever come up with. All the contestants have to... First, they've got to make their bower, yes. right, and collect stuff. Like and do they have to do it with their mouth? 
Possibly. But because the Valverts can steal from each other as well. Yes. And they will with their bottle top treasures, you know, and they've oh got to make a goodness. stage to perform. So that's the first phase of it. You've got to steal treasures from the other contestants to yep. make your bower and with collect all your treasures, which is a stage. Uh-huh. And in the second phase, there's a dance-off. Oh, my That's awesome. God. I love it. That'll be a billion dollars. So thanks. you think you're a bower bird. <laughs> Oh, it's so good. But uh, what's the audition process? Are you trying to get dancers or are you just trying to get anyone that, like, are you looking for the desperate and dateless? <laughs> well, I reckon because the Bowbird Dance is all about impressing your mate. Oh, so it's about male virility. Do you know? get to pa- partner up then at the end of it? Yeah. Oh, yeah, maybe. So maybe, it's a, maybe there's a panel of uh, potential people who are women or men. Yeah, it's it like a perfect match. Yes, no, yes. totally. It's like if you are. Like um, man oh man. Or if you are the one. You know, oh, if you are the one, yeah. they, they, they took their lights on if they like. Yeah. So you go on your bower and strut around doing your dance yeah. in front of your bottle tops and then all the lights go on or off, depending on if people like your dance. God, this is genius. <laughs> oh, that's really good. Now I feel, oh, for, anyway, I came up with one. <laughs> What's your But one? it is nowhere <laughs> yeah, near. Why do we start with the bow? Oh, mate, so if, if I had bowel known bird. it was going to be that you would come up with such gold, I would have left that to the end. <laughs> Um, mine is a it's a it's a dressmaking competition. Oh. <clears throat> um, so you know you get dress designers and, and stuff like that. Um, but they can it's set in a particular time in history. So it might be the early nineteenth century for one season, or it might be you know in the Roman times or whatever. Um, and you're only allowed to use materials from that time. Like oh. you can't use modern sewing machines and stuff like that. I think. That I would totally watch that, that. I think there's something that has happened like this. Maybe. And anyway, and anyway. it's called A Stitch in Time. Oh. <laughs> Thank you. That is genius. Thank you. I'm very I happy with that. totally watch that. It's yeah. really interesting enough. Yeah. <laughs> in a weird kind a of way. Stitch in Time. I, didn't, I just thought of one that was like Big Brother, except that you're at a, a haunted house. I don't know what a good name would be. You guys have to think of one. So you're at a haunted house. Yeah. And so it's Big Brother, but all that was all the difference is that there's things, you know, like spooky things happening all the time. But you get voted off by a Ouija board. Oh. <laughs> I think we're getting a message here. Yeah. It's coming through now. Sarah, you're out. Oh. Your dead grandma says you're out. That's great. What, you, what would you well, call I can't think it? of a fun name for it. Um Oh, yeah, we'll come. Oh, I can't think of anything on the spot. I reckon um, if there are any listeners out there, though, I'm sure that some of our listeners will have good ideas oh, yeah. for reality TV games. I don't know if I can beat. So no, th- no, I can beat. So you think I you're think a bowel we, If you've got a name for your reality TV show, that'd be good. Zero four double six nine eight one zero two seven is our text line. If you want to send us a text, that'd be great. So you think, what would the music be? Oh, um, who are you going to call? Ghostbusters. I that's a bowel bird, but okay, let's <laughs> oh, go with that. Right. <laughs> Three, triple, ah. Oh. It's High Tide Thursday, uh, which is great. It's very fitting because tomorrow we don't have to come into work, so it feels like a Friday. Hurrah. feels like a celebration. Sure does. Uh, high Tide Thursday is where we talk about our highlights of the week. So we have Trauma Tuesday and now it's High Tide Thursday. Uh, I think I think it's fair to say that we all had one particular highlight. Yes, I think it is fair Th- to say that. That we all share the same highlight. Yes. Um, and that was uh, meeting, uh, having an, an encounter with a silverback gorilla. Yes. It's pretty great. It yes. was. And we actually mean a gorilla, not just like some, some guy that tried to beat us up on the streets or something. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So we should um, maybe put that in, in context. We actually went to a zoo. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that yeah, was yeah. where we met the Yeah, I feel like it sounded like some dude came to beat us up on the streets. who was like a thug. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, go. Yes, so we've talked quite a bit about the Werribee Zoo because you've been there. You went there, uh, what, yeah. last year? Yeah, I've been there I've been there a couple of times. Like I'm a you know member of the zoo, so I go to the zoo yeah. quite a bit. And you went recently. And Laura Dunneman works there. Yeah, so we all um, went along and did the um, behind-the-scenes encounter. Yeah. Uh, and we got to do one with the, the gorillas. And it was, we didn't think it was going to happen. Like when we got there, Laura said, oh, we might not. They're out and about, so they might not. It might not happen, and 
And then it was like, oh, it's happening, it's happening. They, so, had, yeah. they had to ring the bell to summon the gorillas, didn't they? Yeah, it yeah. Was time for it was the, amazing. Yeah. Uh, so they, um, yeah, ring the bells. And then it was, you know, we get the talk, you know, out the back and we have to put on the mask. So we had to put on face masks because they can catch our colds really easily. Yeah. So many of us had the floral cold mm. uh, that could, yeah. Uh, and also, and they said that's also because they're used to strangers having that on their face. Yeah. They like their routine. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, they do, don't they? And then we're instructed not to look them in the eyes at any point. But the first thing that I did when I walked in was just... Look him in the eyes. <laughs> just for yeah. ages. Then. Don't stare, don't look them in the eye. And it's the two things that I did for ages. Well, it's was, I found that so hard because as soon as you sat down, we were sitting... Quite At low, eye level. yeah. yeah and, the, and the gorilla was sitting on the other side of the of the kind of cage where he, he's looked after, and uh, his eyes looked straight at us. And they're so expressive. Yeah, I was so taken by how I think they're the most expressive animal eyes I've ever looked into. Yeah, I mean, and how often do you get to look into an animal's eyes? Yeah, like like the gorillas. Yeah, yeah. and I, the thing I kept thinking about afterwards was just the difference between seeing a gorilla, but also the other animals in a photo even a really good photo and being up close to it mm. in person. Like, because oh, yeah. we all took lots of photos and, you know, everyone, we've been sharing them all on all our socials yeah. and stuff. But even the best photos, they don't really capture the presence of the animal uh, in absolutely. a weird kind of way, especially with that gorilla. Just because it's so big, it's so powerful. Mm. I didn't take a photo of the gorilla, I think, for that reason because I just was so in awe of... Yeah. In, in, and also, like, I, I know this is... I know that, you know, we can evolve, we evolve from gorillas or whatever, mm. but I was just so taken by how much it felt like I was sitting opposite, not an equal, but someone who was thinking and responding emotionally really similar to a human. Yes. And, yeah, it was just I found that really quite it's, kind of jarring. Yeah, yeah. It was cool though. And then every now and then you'd catch, you'd be thinking, oh, it's just like a person. And every now and then it would do something which would make you realise yeah. actually it's not a person at all. It's something mm, completely yeah. different. Um, yeah, it was like a it was quite an amazing experience that I think we all, you know, kind of, you know, we're just all sitting there in in all the whole time. I know. Like we're all, you know, and I remember the zookeeper was like, "Do you have any questions?" And I'm like, "Oh, are we here?" I, <laughs> like, I was worried you know? to ask questions because they said to us also, "Don't make loud noises, don't make sudden movements," because because yeah. we were with the head honcho, mm. so he was the alpha gorilla. And his uh, brother, who was... Yakini. Yeah, who it was Yakini. Yeah. I mean, Yakini, yeah. which is amazing because I remember when Yakini was born at Melbourne Zoo years that ago. That classic photo. Yeah. And uh, and his brother was down from us, wasn't he? Mm. And they said he's a bit of an attention seeker. So if you make any sudden movements, he will he might be, yeah. a bit, you know, throw himself around a little bit. So don't do that. But I loved watching the bond between the keeper and the gorilla. There's so much trust as yeah. well. Like they know them so well. So she, she said she'd been working with him for 10 years. Yeah. Was that right? It must have been something. She'd been, yeah, she said she'd been at wherever you like for five or six years or something. Yeah, so, right. Um, but it's just amazing watching him, you know, because he'd, um, they do like training with it. So, um, so they can check it. Like yeah. Health, health, health checks. checks. Yeah. So, you know, this, uh, it's part sign language. He'll, like, she'll go, Show us your bum so he can turn around and presses his bum against the thing so he can get injections. And so, you know, he'll have the the fake, um, like it might be a real needle, but just kind of press that so he's used to doing it. And we got to listen to his heartbeat. That was amazing. Yeah, well, every instruction she gave to him, she would she just go, show us your left arm, like left top of your yeah. arm, and he'd stand up and he'd turn around and then show us your, show us yeah. your back and then show us your tongue and he'd yeah. stick his tongue out and it was... That was yeah. crazy, wasn't yeah. it? Particularly because all of his body parts are so enormous. Yeah, that <laughs> is your arm, and this is like tree trunk of an arm. And when he stood up, they said, "Stand up, please." He stood up, and he was just towering over us. And I was so taken by his size and yeah. how strong he must be. And even when she, you know, throw things into the to the cage, because they train them to any foreign objects in 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 the cage to pass it back out. Um, and so she'd throw in like this, you know, her pointy stick, and he'd go and pick it up and then pass it back to her. And the the what the nail file, yeah. yeah. And just, but also I was just amazed at the the dexterity of him being able to pick up those. Well, his little hands had come out for. Tr- she, she was yeah. giving him treats, little treats to 
just kind of reward each behaviour. And, mm. and they weren't little hands, they were huge hands, would come out below the bottom yeah. of, the, of the kind of, I think saying cage sounds terrible because it's not, it's just kind of a space in which they have to check them. Yeah. And then he just like banged the ground with his big hand, like, give me a treat now, <laughs> yeah. you know. And that looked quite human-like, didn't yeah, it? Yeah, that was the bit that amazed me the most. And th- and he'd kind of huff before, he, like, if he didn't get yeah. his treat, <laughs> his shoulders would go, oh, come on, where's my treat? Just reminded me of my, I was going to say my dad, but that's what <laughs> I, you know, when he'd be like, where's my, where's my yeah. treat? The, the shoulders shrugs. Like an yeah. old man or something, you know? Yeah. The other thing about him, I guess, was just the, I mean, it goes back to what I was saying about his presence, but, you know, as soon as you walk in there, there's this incredible Oh, the muscular, smell. How would you describe it? They, it was described to us because they had to prepare us for the smell as a cross between extraordinarily bad BO and almost urine-ish. Mm. Uh, and that's, it's a, it, just it, a it, bad I, I would say that it meets, yeah. meets somewhere in between that. Mm. Yeah, so like a mm. but I don't know. Did you? I found, I, I, you got used to it, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, really quickly. Like it heats you uh, like a wall, but yeah. And then it's like, oh well, that's that's what it is. And then we smelt like that for the rest <laughs> of the day, which was <laughs> full on. But yeah. it just it was another thing that just made you realise like you were in someone else's world. Yes. You know, this is the animal yeah. kingdom and yeah. things are visceral and, you know, there's there's smells and there's scents and there's sounds. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah it was very – and also I did notice when the keeper said we are discussing whether – what their relationship was like and whether, you know, the gorilla, the gorilla showed much emotion towards her and, or anger or sadness mm. and, and she also said, well, I'm very aware – they're very aware that we're their slaves and I thought that was yeah. really interesting, like the way that they see it. Like he, he keenly still sees himself as top of the, of top the of the hierarchy. table, yeah. And she's yeah. like, I'm very much below him in the hierarchy, and that's and that was kind of cool to know yeah. that, you know. And he had his music too, didn't he? Oh yeah, and his favourite thing is Bublé's Christmas album, yeah, which was so upsetting. <laughs> yeah. I feel that the the keepers don't have a lot of range in music that they play there, so maybe you could make them a couple of a mixed playlist. CDs <laughs> and see how they react. Yeah, That'd yeah. be awesome. I thought it was nice though, the way she said that the reason they think Bublé is their favourite is because it's her favourite and they can possibly absorb the emotions the keepers are feeling. Yes. So when the keepers are feeling really happy and joyous, the gorillas are, that's affecting the way that the gorillas are. Yeah. Like, that's amazing. Yeah, yeah, isn't it? And imagine going into work and thinking, I'm in a really bad mood today. I'm going to have to try and... Like read myself Better of that, so the gorillas, boobly. yeah, so the <laughs> gorillas don't feel nobody this. Nobody wants a three hundred kilogram gorilla to be no, in no. Mood. But that was quite a high tide, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, high tides all round. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio Three Triple R in Melbourne, Australia. You're tuned to Breakfasters here on Triple R with Jeff Geraldine and Sarah Vasquez. Sankara is a writer, the founding editor and publisher of Jacobin Magazine. He's in town for the Marxism 2018 conference. Right now, though, he's joining us here in the Breakfasters studio. Welcome to Triple R. Thanks for having me. You launched Jacobin in 2010 initially as a website. Now, radical websites get launched all the time. Radical websites also close all the time. Yet Jacobin, both as a site, a print magazine and now a publishing venture, has become one of the most important publications on the US left. How do you explain that extraordinary success over such a short period of time? There's an old joke that uh, William F. Buckley, the famous uh, American conservative, uh, was speaking to Michael Harrington and he, he, he opened by saying, you know, Michael Harrington is the most prominent America, uh, you know, socialist in America. Michael Harrington kind of pauses and smiles, you know, takes a compliment and then he Buckley continues, and that's kind of like being the tallest building in Topeka, Kansas. Um, <laughs> so, you know, I, I think that's that's part of it. There was you know, kind of a uh, there wasn't much out there, and um, you know, the left like uh, the the measures of success even now for Jackman are, are kind of um, are still small in the grand scheme of things. We have a, a circulation around forty thousand. We're in a country of three hundred and thirty. You know, million people. So, uh, it's uh, you know, uh, it's it's not um, it's still a relatively small venture. But I would say that for us, what we try to do is take these ideas, left wing ideas, uh, Marxist ideas, socialist ideas, out of just the ghetto of just a couple thousand people talking amongst themselves, getting in fights and splitting amongst ourselves, and just get it back to core premises and try to explain it in a way that doesn't require prerequisite reading. So if you um, read The Economist, you wouldn't have to have read the, you know, uh, private correspondences of Adam Smith to understand it. I think in the same way, if you're going to read a good writing from the socialist left, you shouldn't necessarily make people read 
uh, marks or feel like they have to have a university, you know, degree in philosophy in order to understand it. I guess there's a little bit of a sense, though, and correct me if I'm wrong about this, but with Jacobin, the, the Chapo podcast, and a few other things that socialism has become a bit, maybe fashionable is not the right word, but you've managed to make it a bit hip in a way that perhaps wouldn't have been previously. Yeah, I think generationally it's definitely true on campuses that people are getting politicized. It's not that uncommon for them to get politicized in a socialist organization or to, to say they're socialists. Um, I'm a member of Democratic Socialists of America. When I joined, uh, I joined when I was like 17 years old. So like 10 years ago, it was 5,000 people. The median age was 63 or, some, or something like that. Now there's uh, 34,000 members in the, in the group, 35,000 members. So it's really, um, you know, it's really encouraging in a certain level. But I guess the main thing is really, um, unlike the right, we actually have to organize people in mass to get anything done. You know, if we were just a, like a libertarian pressure group, then we could definitely, with 30-something thousand people, get a bunch of things deregulated or whatnot. But the left really gets its power from workplaces, from communities, from having this real rootedness. And often uh, on the American left, people are coming to it uh, largely, they're college educated in both directions. So, for example, you know, I'm from a uh, like largely working class family. Most of my siblings didn't go to college, but I'm the one in the left and I was the one who went to, to college. And I think there's a lot of a lot of people um, uh, like that. And I guess the the thing we're trying to do now, um, you know, DSA members played a role in the West, uh, West Virginia teacher strike and, and things like that. To try to kind of implant a bit a bit deeper in, in people's day to day lives and not just be kind of a fringe, you know, fun, you know, bubble that's essentially a subculture. How much then did Bernie Sanders um, help kind of spread that message, I suppose? Yeah, I think the main thing is most Americans haven't actually heard the word socialist, uh, especially people born after the Cold the Cold War uh, was over. So Bernie Sanders has a widely popular message on policy issues, like 55, 60% of the country uh, agrees with him. He's the most popular uh, politician in the country. And if he says that all those things that people agree with him, you know, if he says, oh, that's socialism, I think that's tremendous progress. I think there might be some people on the, the far left who kind of are, are a bit a bit snooty about the actual definition of socialism or where Sanders might might diverge a bit bit from it. But, uh, you know, I, th I think that was definitely a big boon. But the main thing is the Democratic Party didn't really have anything to offer uh, people, didn't really have this affirmative, you know, vision of what the world could look like. Sanders had one, like, uh, on the, the socialist left, we had one. So it it really did um, did help, and it wasn't really just Sanders. It's also just Trump and this feeling that, you know, I'm unsure about everything in the world. You know, I'm just going to join a political group and look. I see some socialists. Why not? You know, yeah. <laughs> if Trump's president, you know, really, why not? <laughs> yeah. I feel like when it came to Trump, the left was divided into two camps: the people who afterwards said. Um, I was totally dumbfounded by Trump winning and the people who said, in retrospect, I predicted it all along. <laughs> Which camp were you in? I was hugely dumbfounded. I mean, I and I still believe in my analysis. Uh, in other words, I, I think that, you know, I, I thought there was like a 99% chance that Hillary Clinton was going to be president. I still, you know, stand by that. You know, 99 isn't isn't 100, though. Um, I think largely it was a fluke uh, based on the particularity of the American um, electoral laws, um, due to a variety of other reasons, um, Hillary Clinton was uninspiring, but Trump never really had a, a majority. He, he skated by with the thinnest of, of, of margins. So I, I think there was some degree of fluke there. But what I underestimated with the extent to which anti-establishment feeling was, was in America and this idea of, you know, Trump might not have the solutions, but if you've um, if you're angry and discontent at the system, uh, chances are like a lot of black, brown, you know, traditional uh, unionized workers uh, just stayed at home. You know, they didn't vote for Trump. They just stayed at home. But a lot of other, um, you know, people just were like, oh, you know, this is what they don't want me to do. I'll just do it. Um, and uh, I guess I underestimated uh, that. But it's 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 kind of a counterintuitive for a Marxist because every single big business block in the country, besides for fossil capital and a couple others, we're behind Hillary Clinton and every progressive part of the country, uh, social movements, um, unions, all these other forces lined up behind Hillary Clinton, too. So she had all the establishment, the good establishment and the bad establishment, um, you know, behind her. And, you know, Trump still managed to win. So I was shocked. I was I was the most overly confident, um, you know, uh, 
person about this election. But it's been uh, talked about that Bernie Sanders might run again. Do you think that's likely? And how do you think the response would be this time, you know, one and a half years into Trump's presidency? So I do think it's uh, likely um, that he will run. Um, I think the real concern is that Bernie Sanders over the past year or so has had to basically take it, take up the leadership of a party, essentially, or a portion of a party that he's not actually a member of. So I'm afraid that on Russia, on a few other issues, he's aping a bit too much the Democratic uh, Party line on things and uh, that he's losing a bit of that anti-establishment outsider spirit that he had when he was actually going to war against Hillary Clinton and, and vice versa, you know, it was, uh, and people really like that, especially people who are discontent with the Democratic Party. And I'm afraid that if he comes in again, he'll just sound like a progressive Democrat. Um, so it's better than the alternatives, but I'm, I'm, I don't think the magic will necessarily be recreated this time um, around, uh, but I do think it's a good idea in lieu of other, other ideas. Much of the liberal left in America has been concentrating very heavily on Russian influence in American politics, this line about Putin having hacked the 2016 election. We're now seeing a very real polarisation around the world between the United States and Russia. It seems to be escalating daily. What's your analysis on how leftists in the United States and elsewhere should be um, reacting to this quite strange conjuncture? Yeah, I mean, I think that in the United States, our stance should essentially be um, obviously saying that, you know, Russia is a an authoritarian, you know, government, you know, we have no particular, um, you know, love for, for Russia, but that the election was lost by the Democratic Party for certain reasons. And we really shouldn't should think about why the election was lost and think about the ways in which you could actually give people dreams, like a hope to vote for rather than just trying to shield them from nightmares. And I think that... Um, you know, the whole Russia emphasis is taking it away from what the Democratic Party did wrong and how it could we build a working class uh, base. Uh, so I, I myself would be very, uh, I, I'm very much on the, the left uh, shouldn't participate in talking about Russia. I think it's a little bit different in other other contexts as other countries. I think in the United Kingdom, for instance, I th- there's a case to be made that uh, Corbyn should be slightly more um, like outraged about um, the um, uh, Russian Russian role, the recent assassination and whatnot, just out of uh, the fact that you know he's close to power and and you know people want some credibility. I think there's a way to do it without um, becoming like a warmonger. Uh, but in the United States, you know, we're small, we're in opposition. I think this is serving only a reactionary uh, role. Do you think the kind of increasing hostility with Russia that is going to work in Trump's favor? Um, I actually, I mean, I, I'm even more confident than I was in, in 2016 <laughs> that uh, Trump, Trump um, I think people are waiting for him to fail. They're hoping that he, that he fails. They're kind of angry about every little bit of his, um, I, so I, I don't think credibly he's a leader that could um, do a drumbeat to war kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. I, I'm, you know, I'm afraid that he'll launch some cruise missiles against North Korea or something. Something like that might have some some support, but I don't think there's wider support. Um, and also, he's just not credible in Russia. So the more, even if he takes an aggressive stance in Russia now, it's just he's drawing attention back to Russia. Yeah. Um, and I don't think that serves him um, at all. Uh, you know, so. Um, yeah, I, I actually don't think there's much that Trump could do other than a very dangerous path that he didn't go down, which would have been the kind of Steve Bannon, like populist path right after his election. So I was afraid that he would just say, you know, money is cheap right now. I'm going to um, do a bunch of deficit finance infrastructure building. And he goes from having a base of 45 to having a base of 51. And I think the left is very essentialist sometimes when they think about black and brown workers, particularly uh, black voters and and Trump. You know, they they didn't vote for Trump, but he they don't he doesn't need a majority of black voters if he creates a big jobs program. You know, and he actually did give something materially like Steve Bannon and others wanted. I think it would have been really dangerous, and we would have had a a real right populist core. But instead, it seems like Trump has shed a lot of his his populism and instead, you know, has gone in the direction of a just kind of buffoonish um, neoliberalism, kind of a Berlusconi-like like thing. And I, and I don't think that is going to uh, serve him very well in either the midterms in 2018 or in uh, 2020. All right, just on that before we let you go, the Trump regime seems to be careering from scandal 
to scandal, but we had the Women's March immediately after Trump's um, inauguration or before Trump's inauguration. We've had the Me Too movement as well. In that context, where is the anti-Trump resistance? Where is it at? Are we seeing mobilisation? Should we expect to see more of them in the future? Well, I think that the Women's March was really important partially because it was just another moment where so many people who didn't think of themselves as being political at all or caring about politics were out, they were marching, they were thinking about these issues, they were reconceptualizing themselves as, as you know, political agents and not just people kind of trapped inside a, a nightmare. I think... Unfortunately, we're kind of trapped by the fact that we don't actually have an opposition. We don't really have parties in a classic sense, first of all. But uh, that's another kind of thing to dive into the difference in the, the party uh, party systems. Uh, we basically have um, um, if if the like Australian Labour Party wasn't wasn't formed at the end of the nineteenth century, that's basically I think the trajectory of, of Australian politics might look like uh, U.S. U.S. politics. Um, so uh, you know, I think that that it's. Hillary Clinton has never said, we're going to rally against this Trump proposal. You know, the Democratic Party mm-hmm. doesn't really, like, assemble people to do things. And um, I think that a lot of this this energy has kind of faded away or it's drifted into this kind of media, NGO, and legalistic kind of thing. Like, oh, we're going to find grounds to impeach Trump, you know, which, you know, what's that going to yield you? Um, a, a pissed off electorate who thinks you stole their Democratic mandate. <laughs> And then also an even worse, but also more competent, you know, uh, vice president and, and Pence uh, leading the country instead. So um, I think that a lot of the resistance has kind of just been swallowed up in this kind of liberal NGO mentality. And that's a shame because I think fundamentally in the United States, most people um, like the message of Bernie Sanders. Most people aren't racist. Most people actually have pretty progressive views on immigration, um, even relative to other um, like countries in, in Europe and elsewhere. So I think there's a lot of um, hope uh, there. Uh, we just uh, uh, haven't seen it really manifest itself into uh, mass you know, movements. <sighs> All right, the Marxism Conference is on over this long weekend. There's all sorts of talks happening there. You can check them out on the website. One of the people who will be speaking is the man we've just been talking to, Baska Sankara. Thanks so much for coming. Thank you. You're listening to the best bits of The Breakfasters from 3RRR. 